Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim and welcome to our third session of Islamic Book Reviews with myself, Usama al-Azami and Dr. Omar Anshasi from the University of Edinburgh. Um, I am um, at the University of Oxford and a lecturer there in Islamic Studies and uh, Dr. Omar Anshasi is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Edinburgh. And uh, this is Islamic Book Reviews. Um, we've actually started our third session. Um, for those of you who are coming back, you will know who we are. Um, for everyone who's new, um, I'd like to welcome you with a brief explanation of what this session is. We're basically looking at recent books that have been published in the field of Islamic studies um, as a sort of Western academic uh, field of scholarship. And uh, Islamicate is a phrase which is drawn from Marshall Hodgson's uh, sort of work, where he basically talks about um, aspects of Muslim societies that are not quickly related to the religious uh, tradition, but are manifestations of how those societies sort of are, in a sense, imprinted with Islam writ large. And so I've extended the metaphor to include Islamic studies as a field in the West. And this week's book is uh, by Rudolf Peters, one of the most important sort of legal scholars of the last 50 years or so, last half century, um, in, in the Western tradition of Islamic studies. Uh, his uh, recently um, edited volume, uh, Sharia Justice and Legal Order, uh, Egyptian uh, and Islamic, uh, Egyptian Law and Islamic Law Selected Essays. I've got the- Let me hold it up to the camera just so our audience can see. So, so this is the sort of, this is his recent work and we're basically going to have the opportunity to discuss it. It's actually a collection of essays that he's written over the past 40 or so years. Um, that's actually um, longer than either myself or Omar <laughs> alive. <laughs> so this is actually uh, also a sort of a, a look at the field of Islamic law or Islamic legal studies in the West. Um, the format is broadly speaking, I will sort of, this is really an opportunity for me to ask Omar what he's been reading lately. And uh, you know, those of us who are familiar with Omar's reading habits will know that he reads very, very broadly. Mm -hmm. And so this will be an opportunity for him to basically give a presentation of about 10 to 15 minutes on the book. Um, because it's a collection of essays, he'll explain that it might not be sort of uh, in the way that he's conducted this in the last uh, two sessions. Then I will engage Omar in a conversation, actually, and that conversation will probably extend to between 15 and 30 minutes. Um, and throughout this process, people are welcome to write, uh, write questions uh, in the sort of um, uh, text bar or depending on the sort of... Uh, uh, place that they're joining from. If they're on Facebook, they can sort of type in comments. If they're on, um, uh, if you're coming from YouTube, you can sort of uh, type in the chat bar, if I recall correctly. So please feel free to ask questions. Please feel free to give other comments if you, um, you know, would like to. Um, you can also, we're more, more than happy to receive feedback from yourselves. And, um, you know, if you'd like to get notifications of our videos or when we're going live next, please do, um, you know, like, follow and subscribe. So inshallah, without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Omar, who is the um, sort of uh, expert for <laughs> witness, so to speak, in this legal session. And uh, please, uh, you know, take it away with this book, inshallah. Thank you. Uh, this book is really a feast. And as Osama was just saying, represents uh, a contribution to scholarship on Islamic law in particular, uh, stretching over more than four decades. And uh, the volume is divided into two sections reflecting different elements of Peter's scholarship. The first section focuses on Islamic law, particularly in its Egyptian context, and especially uh, in the first part of that section on Egyptian law in the 19th century. So very important analysis that has deeply influenced the field of what actually happens in a granular uh, well-documented fashion to Egyptian law uh, in this period. And there are other articles in that section on, for instance, debates about Egyptian law in the 20th century. Uh, the second section of uh, the Book of Essays uh, explores Islamic law in general, uh, and you have a variety of uh, geographic interests. So he talks about, uh, very importantly, after the 2000s, Peters wrote some important articles on Islamic law in the Nigerian context, what happens when between uh, 2000 and 2004, 12 states in northern Nigeria introduce uh, forms of Islamic law. Uh, and he was commissioned by the European Union actually to report on this. 
uh, in 2002. So uh, among many other uh, articles and, and, and chapters, uh, an important one on apostasy and so on. Um, so it is impossible, of course, to be comprehensive in my coverage, let alone exhaustive, but I shall try to pick out some of the major themes, some of Peter's uh, most important uh, or most interesting to, from my perspective, contributions to the study of Islamic law in the modern period. I should say there is a very helpful uh, introduction or foreword by Rob Gleave, and this explores uh, Peter's contributions in the context of changes in, in the field of Islamic legal studies in the last few decades. Uh, and I shall limit uh, my comments on that forward to saying Gleave illustrates that in a number of respects, Peters was ahead of the field. His 1979 uh, book on jihad was one of the first serious sustained uh, scholarly treatments of that subject in 1979, long before it became uh, fashionable to discuss this from an Islamic legal perspective. Uh, and in terms of Egyptian law, uh, Peter's major contribution uh, has really been uh, to explore what happens, what changes in the administration of Islamic law in the uh, long 19th century in Egypt, primarily with reference to archival and documentary sources. Uh, and he was doing this already in the 1980s. Of course, now it's much more common to study what happens in, in Islamic law in practice. Uh, but when he was writing, and when he was a student in, in the 60s and uh, through to the 70s, as Gleave points out, uh, the primary interest of scholars was in uh, legal doctrine, what the fiqh texts say, as opposed to how these operationalized in actual uh, discrete historical context. So in term, uh, beginning with 19th century Egypt, uh, Peters has, of course, written about Islamic law broadly, but one of his major interests uh, on which he's published a fantastic monograph that I always assign uh, students chapters of in my teaching is on Islamic criminal law. Uh, so one of Peters' key contributions, and he does this through a number of articles in the first section of, of the volume, is uh, to explore uh, how exactly... Um, uh, quote-unquote secular forms of justice uh, were introduced in 19th century Egypt. What exactly were the jurisdictional boundaries between Sharia courts and these, uh, well, secular is, is probably the wrong word, these state administrative courts, and I'll explain that shortly, and uh, how subsequently, particularly uh, from 1883 onwards, uh, Sharia courts uh, jurisdiction came to be quite radically curtailed with implications um, uh, for the future and uh, leading to debates in the 1930s and again in the 1970s about uh, the kind of legal identity of the Egyptian state. Um, one of Peter's most important contributions is to point out both uh, when exploring uh, penal law and other elements of law uh, in, in the 19th century, various codes enacted. Muhammad um, Ali, the ruler of Egypt, really begins uh, reform of penal law and codification in, in 1829. Uh, but this is an ongoing process that continues throughout the rest of the 19th century. Uh, but also uh, in his uh, references to the Majella, uh, which was uh, promulgated in 1876, uh, scholarship that has subsequently been built on by Sami Ayyub, um, but in any case, uh, one of Peter's important findings is that Sharia courts in Egypt continued to enjoy jurisdiction over criminal cases really until 1883. And the uh, justice uh, that uh, was an, uh, implemented in the form of uh, majalis, yes, uh, majalis, this important form of um, legal order that had sometimes been contested in the past as a kind of secularizing order encroaching upon the domain of Sharia. Peters tells us it is a mistake to understand uh, CS uh, justice in this form. And in the 19th century, the Qanuns attempts to codify penal law, for instance, were seen as complementary to Sharia justice. And particular offenses uh, such as homicide would be tried first by Sharia uh, justices before being referred to uh, CS councils or Majellus. There's something, of course, 
uh, Khalid Fahmi has built upon in his, his recent inquest of justice. And there is, I should uh, say, a long-standing collaboration between Ruth Peters and Khalid Fahmi, and their, their work kind of reflects, builds and riffs off, off each other. Um, now, there were important modifications to Egyptian penal law in this period. And uh, for instance, in 1861, flogging was banned. Flogging, of course, was an important dimension of Islamic criminal law. But Peters points out that Qadis, uh, many of them did not interpret this law as applying to them. So they continued to pass sentences of flogging after this important reform in 1861. Uh, he also says that he cannot find instances of uh, qisas punishments for injury, so retaliation in other words, being passed, or indeed had punishments for theft, for example, uh, occurring. And uh, much of the time, this is a result of, or the, the, you know, lower courts would pass su such sentences that would invariably be quashed by higher courts of appeal that found on procedural and other Sharia grounds uh, these sentences could not be enacted. But Peters does say in the second half of the uh, 19th century uh, that it seems there was a reluctance, although he says he cannot really demonstrate it in a concrete way. It's plausible or possible, he says, in, in different places in the book, uh, that there was a reluctance among state authorities who were influenced by European norms and kind of colonial elite, uh, Egyptian elites uh, to uh, implement sentences involving mutilation. Uh, but in terms of uh, the law of retaliation, one of Peter's major discoveries on which he's got uh, a number of uh, articles is that the law of Qasama, uh, of you could say compagation uh, involving the swearing of oaths, was fully uh, in evidence or is fully in evidence in 19th century Egypt, including rules about the aqila, uh, kinship or mutual support group responsible for the payment of blood money. So, so anyway, uh, to summarize this discussion of 19th century Egypt, uh, Sharia law in, in the domain of uh, criminal and, and penal law does, does remain in force and it enjoys this complementary uh, relationship with Qanuns, uh, but a, a secular judiciary is created to enforce uh, this CS, a form of justice, which eventually, um, you could say, displaces by 1883 onwards Sharia forms of justice in all areas except uh, family law, succession, and, and waqf, the law of endowment, and so on. So this kind of broadly covers some of, uh, of course, the many, many things uh, Professor Peters says about uh, criminal law in particular in Egypt in the 19th century. Thank you very much, Thank Amr. And your timing is very good as well. Well, that was only the first half, but hopefully in the conversation we'll have a yes, chance yes. to say more and about it. We're getting some questions, and the, well, not just questions, but comments as well. And we look forward to sort of engaging them further, sure. know, roughly around the half an hour mark onwards. Um, but I think, uh, you know, you've given us, a, I, it's a 700 page book, 726 pages, I, I believe, yes. um, to be precise. And um, there's a lot to sort of process there and you've given us a taste of, you know, as much as you can in a 10 minute space. Well, um, there's a lot to say, of course. Th there's so much more to say. And um, I, I wanted to sort of pick up on a couple of points that you've mentioned. Um, towards the end, you were talking about the way in which, um, in a sense, the Sharia and, you know, state law, maybe CS, uh, Qanun, etc., um, was complementary in a sense um, for a period. And then, uh, gradually it started to be displaced. And I, I wonder to um, <clears throat> the, the, state at, the stage at which you describe it as complementary, um, it'd be interesting to know when that was, because, of course, uh, when, when you say siyasa, I think madhalim courts, um, and I think of a tradition that is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it's been a while that I've really <laughs> engaged uh, Islamic legal studies in a serious way. But, um, you know, it's something which you find going back centuries, of course. It's in a sense, part and parcel of a Sharia landscape. Um, yes. Whereas, in a sense, what's happening in the sort of post-Muhammad Ali era is, um, you know, that space is now, that resembles more and more the European state and the prerogatives of the European yes. state that begins to encroach and start to take over all of the um, sort of other areas of life. And now, in a sense, you have a... 
a state landscape or a you know post-Westphalian, however you want to describe it, a state landscape in which the Sharia has certain sort of like domains where it can still persist, but it's not a Sharia landscape anymore, so to speak. Yes. Is that, is that a fair? Uh, yes. So uh, Peters does not refer to the long-standing critique of CS forms of justice that jurists right. across the centuries entertain. Right. Uh, he does make it clear especially because he's, he's a scholar who has Ottoman Turkish and actually trained in, in Turkish law as well, right. that uh, the, the relationship of... St and, and this is, I should say, one of the um, uh, aspects of Peter's work that has been pursued in subsequent scholarship, whether the work of James Baldwin or Sami Ayoub or others. So he's, he's aware that, you know, from the 15th century onwards, there was some kind of relationship between state law and, uh, and Islamic law in the Ottoman context. Right. And that it was not an antagonistic relationship, generally speaking. But would you say uh, that, you know, exclusively to the Ottoman context or, you know, uh, very often when people speak of Siyasa, they think of uh, the works of Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn al-Qayyim, yes. which is, it's, it's relatively late, but it's much earlier than yes. the Ottoman. Well, what, yeah. what I mean is if you look at previous historiography and until recently, and you still do find it occasionally, the sense had very much been that uh, you know, when Peters was a student of Islamic law in the 1960s, if you look at all the works by Joseph Schacht and even Bernard Lewis writing on the Ottoman context, uh, this sense was very much that state law was what really went on and Islamic law was very much a theoretical discourse that was right. not properly implemented right. and was antagonistic to the law of the state and raison d'etat and these kinds of things. And mm -hmm. subsequent scholarship has really pushed back against this narrative. And Peter's made a major contribution towards this effort that has served as the foundation of subsequent studies. I mean, if I can interrupt you just briefly, um, that seems to be something which, um, you know, Rob mentions in the introduction in his preface. Uh, Robert Cleave writes the preface for this work. And um, one of the things that struck me in, because I, I haven't sort of reflected on this dimension of the transformation of the field very much, is that it basically seems to reflect the type of um, legal practice that they were witnessing in the post-colonial state. And they were saying, oh, that must have been how it was. So they're projecting that back. Yes, I mean, th there is a possibility of that. Uh, mm -hmm. I should say that Peters talks about Yes, there are, there are major transformations in the 19th century. So he very clearly distinguishes between, uh, you know, the Qanun, uh, uh, well, uh, what happens in the 19th century is codification and rationalization along, you know, very much enlightenment uh, European lines. Now, the difference between what happens before the 19th century in, in Ottoman Qanun and what then happens once they've internalized this vision that raw, law has to be, quote-unquote, rational and, uh, you know, it cannot be discussive, it has to be uniform and unambiguous and all of this. Right. Um, the Qanun was meant to regulate and supplement the enforcement of Sharia prior to the 19th century. Right. And often uh, it simply recognized that something was an offense and had to be punished without stipulating a particular punishment much of right. the time. Right. What happens in the 19th century is this notion that the Ottomans very much internalize that law should be uniform, it should be laid down in codes. And for this reason, they, they create... Um, the Magella. Uh, well, a secular judiciary. The Magella represents an attempt at codification of Islamic law in the domain of civil law. But, you know, the codification project long precedes uh, the Magella finished in 1876, and it actually postdates the Magella as well. So the 1917 Ottoman uh, family code uh, represents another effort in this direction. Uh, one difference, I should say, between the Ottoman and Egyptian context, of course, formally speaking, the Egyptian domain is still part of the Ottoman Empire in the early 19th century. This sort of this fiction of delegation, but it is, for all practical purposes, mostly independent in a legal yeah. sense. Yeah. Although there remains uh, remains a relationship between them. Hmm. Um, what happens with the 1883 introduction of uh, French codes in civil, criminal, commercial, and other areas? Um, is not quite what happens in the Ottoman Empire, where in the area of civil law you have the Medulla in, in force. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, and, and, and in, in our two articles, uh, Peters discusses four kind of major models 
uh, of Islamic law in Muslim-majority states today, uh, one of which represents what happens in the Egyptian uh, context, which is an area where Sharia is circumscribed uh, to the domain of family law and the law of succession and so on. Uh, and that is the prevalent model in most Muslim-majority countries. Uh, a minority of uh, contexts undergo uh, total secularization, Turkey being the, uh, the key example, and some, uh, some states such as Iran and uh, Sudan uh, attempt to re-Islamize their legal systems in the 1970s onwards. Right. And finally, you have uh, rare examples uh, like Saudi Arabia, Arabia that never underwent sort of this kind of colonial or European-inspired intervention in their legal systems, though they still do uh, create hierarchies of courts and, and so on. Although, I mean, it will be interesting to see what happens. Uh, it, you know, Saudi Arabia has been an interesting case um, in recent years. Yeah. And, it, you know, um, it is a place that is very welcoming, for example, to uh, multinational corporations in certain domains. Yes. which need to operate within sort of legal frameworks that they, they bring in and very often institutionalize. So, so the, the, the key yeah. work on the Saudi legal system, of course, is by Frank Vogel. And there is an important discussion of the history of aspects of Saudi law in Nabil Moulin's Clerics of Islam. Mm -hmm. The key right. work on Saudi law now is being done by a brilliant uh, doctoral student, Dominic Krell of Hamburg. And he mm -hmm. informs us that uh, codification in Saudi Arabia uh, based on a conversation I, I had a few years ago, is really around the corner, uh, yeah. not because yeah. of political Im imperatives and MBS and so on. Right. It's, it's right. been a long time in coming. It was resisted by senior ulama for many decades, course, beginning yeah. already yeah. during the reign of King Abdul Aziz, but it will, it will eventually come. Uh, so so in, in what sense um, is this something which is, you know, as you're putting it, almost foregone conclusion, what you know, what are the main drivers? Based on, on conversations happening among among the judiciary now, a kind of younger generation. Right. And a lot of it is to do with this feeling that uncodified law is chaotic and arbitrary and all of these things that were raised as criticisms, you know, of Islamic law by, say, the British in Bengal, which uh, right. important thing that... Have been internalized uh, now by the sort of younger judiciary. Yes, so uh, there's a fantastic chapter in the book on natural justice and right. Islamic criminal law in the context right. of British India and Nigeria under British rule. Excellent uh, article right. that shows how, while implementing aspects of Islamic criminal law, the British also domesticated them in in very interesting ways. To, and it kind of produces a hybrid legal right. system, or you could right. say if you're being less charitable, a bastard uh, legal right. system. Right. Uh, but yes. Um, I just wanted to let people know, viewers who are watching, that uh, you can feel free to ask questions. I can see that and indeed share comments and feedback. Um, Jan Islam has asked several and we will try to engage them in the last sort of 15 to 20 minutes of the session. Um, I, I wanted to sort of, in a sense, there are so many dimensions to the things that you've mentioned, and we're going to have to home in on very narrow sort of um, aspects of them. I'm personally partial to thinking a bit more about codification, um, perhaps just for my own sort of edification, so to speak, yeah. with respect to <clears throat> the, I mean, you said if you want to be uncharitable, you can describe it as a bastardization of the legal system. Um, well, I, I should say uh, that wasn't a comment about codification. That was, right. well, that was oh, really about operation of Islamic law in, in yeah. particular colonial context. Now, one very important point I want to raise that uh, right. emphasizes is... Uh, before, before you do that, I mean, just um, to sort of, and, and please do come back to that in just a moment. I, I wanted to sort of uh, get your take on the Halakian sort of critique of codification as, you know, this in a sense, destruction of Islamic law and yes. what you make of that and how you sort of square it with the other. Well, I mean, I do want to focus on the book, but I would say, yeah. uh, and it relates to what, what we were discussing previously, yeah. Uh, yeah. Peter states very clearly, and this is one critique I believe Sherman Jackson raised of Halak's right. impossible state, and I quote, outsiders, that is to say non-Muslims, uh, are not competent to determine for Muslims uh, what Islam and the Syria are. Are right. Uh, a very important point, um, and yes, one can make an analytical distinction, and, and Peters does it at great length. He translates, for instance, books of uh, sections from Hanafi 
photo right. manuals and then contrast them with what you get in the codified law and, and so on. So he's very alive to this distinction between codified law and, and Islamic law, but he says, well, it is up for Muslims to make this determination of what is and is not legitimately Islamic, which I think is a very important point. Now, of course, we, we all benefit from the work of of Halaq, and actually many of us find compelling this point, well, what happens with codification is clearly radically different, analytically speaking, but you know whether or not it's legitimately Islamic is another point. I mean, Qasim Zaman makes uh, the book, uh, the point, sorry, in his brief uh, biography of, uh, of Ashraf Ali Thanvi that yeah. most South Asian uh, ulama do accept codification as right. a legitimate uh, legitimate manifestation. Is, as far as I understand, it's the standard, it's the going opinion of, you know, people like um, uh, Muhammad Osmani, who's obviously one of the most important jurists in the yes. life today in the region. Um, uh, but it also goes back to, I mean, I recall reading um, sections of Tariq al-Gohari's uh, dissertation. You may be, you know, you probably read it. <laughs> so this is the, the one on codification? Yes, on and... codification. And he talks, I think, uh, at length about Bakhit al-Muti'i and others who are from what I can tell, um, maybe not specifically Bakhit al-Muti'i, but eventually it becomes a foregone conclusion. And today all the jurists say, well, this is obviously what you have to do. Um, yes, and, and uh, for the most part, all, uh, the criticism of, of ulama and then even uh, Islamists, I mean, I, this is a tricky distinction to make because, mm. of course, you have senior government appointees <laughs> like the Sheikh al-Azhar who say, yes, of course, Egyptian law must be Islamized. So are they Islamists or not? Anyway, right. that, that's another problem, the dis discussion of categories and the appropriateness right. of these, these labels, which are often just polemical fictions. But anyway, right. um, yes, I mean, clearly, and he, he says one of the most important developments in the modern period is the contestation of the authority of the ulama in the domain of religious law. So now anyone can have an opinion about the Sharia and right. what it constitutes. Now, what uh, ulama like, and he discusses actual concrete proposals made, especially in, in the late 1970s, for Islamization of uh, of, of Egyptian law, the civil civil law and the penal code. So we're talking about Peters here, or we're talking about... Yes, Peters. Mm -hmm. Right, thank you. So he has a great article, uh, which I hadn't actually read before, believe it or not, <laughs> uh, in, in the sense that I'm surprised I hadn't come across such an important piece, yeah. uh, discussing debates about Islamic law in Egypt. Right. Uh, and part of, part of the article explores what happens from, especially 1976 onwards, where the government is very seriously entertaining proposals to Islamize law and a number of draft proposals are put forward, some of them by the Ministry of Justice and a committee that it commissions uh, for that purpose. Uh, others Sufi by Abu Talib. Yeah, some, someone oh. called Sufia Abu Talib, I believe. Like there was an interesting... I mean, there are many, many draft yeah. proposals and, and right. uh, Peters does actually examine them in detail. The, the right. proposals for the Had, for instance. Right. Uh, but the Egyptian government very radically alters its position okay. in, the 19, in 1981, especially in the wake of Sadat's assassination, right. from a policy that had favored accommodation with Islamists and those advocating uh, Islamization of Egyptian law to a policy of confrontation. Now, they did never, uh, never actually renounce the policy of Islamization. Right. This would damage the Egyptian government's legitimacy quite severely. Right. What they do, uh, and it reflected especially in a 1985 report, is to really kick this discussion into the long grass, right. which is what government committees are made for, even in the British context, by saying what we need is a scientific, quote-unquote, and gradual um, amendment of Egyptian law, right. and in practice that has meant no substantive change. And in fact, uh, whenever cases have been brought um, uh, suggesting that a particular law is repugnant to the Sharia and therefore in line with uh, Article 2 of the Egyptian Constitution amended in 1980 to say right. that um, Egyptian or the Sharia is the principal source of Islamic law. Right. Uh, the, the, basically what, what has happened in practice is what Islamic law actually, actually is, yes. is determined by the Supreme Constitutional Court and, right. uh, in, exactly. in Egypt. So it's not the... So this, this is actually discussed a little, yeah, this is discussed a little by um, Andrew March. I mean, he, I think, talks about it in his latest book um, on uh, the Caliphate of Man. Um, yes, and, I mean, many, many scholars have, have published on uh, the Egyptian constitution and it's... Right. Nathan Brown uh, in particular, I think, has commented specifically mm -hmm. on the fact that uh, ultimately, you know, it's basically what does the 
because of the the vagueness of the language in the constitution, the principles of Islamic law, and this was actually a major debate within the constitutional debates uh, after the revolution as well, where the Salafis wanted more clear language, ahkam al-sharia instead of yes. al sharia um, Because of that, it just allowed for, you know, any sort of um, member of the Supreme Constitutional Court to make those determinations because it was vague. Yes, uh, but I, I should yeah. say uh, that state elites do not always interpret the provisions of the law in the direction that one would expect. Yes, yes. Uh, Peters has, and I want to give an example Peters gives, in 1952, uh, one of the, 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 or the highest uh, state administrative legal body, Majlis al-Ahkam, if I remember correctly, right. uh, rules on a case involving a Baha'i employee of the state railway company, so a state official salary, who claims um, that he wants his marriage allowance, which he's entitled to as a married married person. Now, right. because even though uh, Islamic law is irrelevant in the domain of Egyptian criminal law today, mm -hmm. and since, uh, since, the, uh, 1880, since the 1880s, um, he said, you know, I'm, I'm a citizen, I'm entitled to my marriage allowance. Um, right. The, the Majlis al-Ahkam actually found that uh, even though he appealed to the uh, article of the Constitution that, that says, Hurriyat al-Mu'taqad mutlaq, yeah. so absolute freedom of belief, right. <laughs> curiously, they interpreted this freedom right. to mean that one could shift legal madhab or could shift within, uh, you know, could uh, identify with a different Muslim group or sects, you know, from Sunni well, to Shia. Well, think curiously, but I mean, I think, you know, there are so many presuppositions in the way in which we sort of frame our sort of principles that uh, that would, that may have seemed just quite obvious that obviously we're not taking into consideration people leaving Islam altogether, for example. And, and well, this is something I, yeah. There's you could say it's in the background, but you know the yeah. the, the modern uh, form of the constitution is of clearly of European ins inspiration. Sure, and sure. when yeah. language like freedom of religion and freedom right. of belief yeah. is used, right. uh, the default assumption in any context, whether it's Egypt in, in the mid twentieth century or I don't know Malaysia today, is right. that this refers to unfettered freedom. For instance, to convert from one religion to another. And Peters yeah. has an excellent article on apostasy that he co-authored. Right. Uh, where he talks about the, the, the civil consequences still very much active in, in places like Egypt attached right. to apostasy, so the dissolution of one's marriage, for instance, right. and all of the, the various uh, things that may or may not happen in, in the context of inheritance. Right. Um, and even, even the, the, the concept of the Dar al-Islam actually has a function because uh, Egyptian uh, family law is still shaped by and informed in very profound ways by... Uh, Islamic family law. So let me, uh, so that's another let me briefly sort of just um, add a comment to what you said, which is that, you know, the, the presupposition when we think about the framework of the modern nation state uh, is that when you talk about freedom of religion, it means something very particular. And I think um, that perhaps overstates the sort of necessity of following the European model. I'm not saying that's what you're suggesting, but I think that's a presumption in a lot of the analysis in these sorts of circumstances. At what point does an idea travel and then become indigenous and adapted in that sort of context in a way that's quite radically different to the way it would be conceived of in the sort of Euro European context, or you might even maybe somewhat uncharitably say in the Eurocentric imagination? Yes, um, I mean, it's, it's yeah. an interesting contention. I, I would disagree with you, though, for the reason that I know, freedom of religion, this is a very specific formulation, right. uh, one widely adopted in uh, European human rights, uh, you know, sorry, right, right, right. In, in international human rights mechanisms. Yeah. So it does actually have a concrete legal uh, content, you could say. It has a so real legal meaning. Which are controlled by sort of the norms of... Uh, well, you say jurisdictions are controlled, but I, I'm talking about international human rights norms and conventions and treaties. I uh, rather than yes. so, the the very the, the very use of this terminology reflects right. profound influence by uh, Europe systems of, of, of kind of inspired I, by. I entirely agree. Uh, I think the the difference in what I'm suggesting here is that when people like Yusuf Al Khardawi and these are the sorts of people I'm looking at very often in my own research, when they actually co-opt some of this language, uh, they then take them in very different directions, and I I want to afford them the right to do that, and in a yes, sense sure. try to sort of like um, re. Uh, not just um, not quite reclaimed because it's not really a, a term of Islamic origin uh, in its, mm. uh, but indigenize in a fashion 
that pushes back against the colonial um, or arguably sort of um, imperial um, project of imposing the nation state in a very narrow specific model on the whole world. Sure, so, and of course yeah. Muslims are possessed agency to, to appropriate this terminology right. and to deploy it in ways they see fit. There are two very uh, excellent uh, articles in, in the volume on Islamic law and human rights, right. and one of which yeah. Peters actually critiques certain apologetic tendencies that you find in, uh, and he, he discusses Mawdudi in particular. Right. And, and for him, I sense, although he, he affords Muslims the agency to do this, of course, he's very yeah. explicit yeah. about that, he does critique uh, this terminological obfuscation, I suppose you could say, because you know when you use terms like freedom of belief, yeah. that does have very particular connotations. And yeah. I, I have to say from a personal perspective, in, in the work of someone like Qaradawi, there, there is a, a studied vagueness right. um, yeah. taking studied place. So to speak. A studied ambiguity. Yeah. And of course, yes, he is doing something different, but he, he is clearly appealing to internationally shared norms. I think, so th 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 there yeah. is, I mean, and you can interpret this in a charitable is, way and you can be yeah. critical of it. But the same thing is in Modudi's work as well. And I, you know, yeah. now that you mentioned that he engages Modudi, I, I have to read that because obviously, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm working a bit on Modudi myself. The, yeah. I think the, and, and you are familiar with my, um, forthcoming article on on Modudi, you know, one of the points that I make with um, uh, the sort of that particular article is to say that what is to say that Modudi cannot try to reclaim a term like sovereignty, or not really oh. reclaim, but claim a term like sovereignty, and then take it in a direction that is a very conscious effort to push back against the hegemony of sort of Eurocentric oh. interpretation. So and I, I I think that's part of what makes these people very interesting uh, intellectually. But I think it's also you know on a broader sort of you could say even Islamic project. That's quite an important aspect of, you know, the way in which um, Islamic law can respond to these kinds of encroachments. Let me just make one final point, and then I'll let you sort of wrap up if that's okay. Which is that, and and you can let me know what you think about this. In a sense, the nation state in the post-Westphalian sort of post-Reformation, post you know. Um, uh, Renaissance, <laughs> just everything. I mean, after Europe comes the ascendancy of Europe. The nation state is exported globally. It's a, it's a social construct. Um, you know, naturally, like all abstract ideas, but it's got a reality suddenly for people that doesn't allow them to any longer break away from it. You know, even the fact that you know I'm talking to you about oh, uh, what does freedom of religion mean? It's so embedded in our understanding that it means this thing and it's affiliated or associated with this intellectual um, sort of tradition and associated with the laws of the nation state and international norms, you know, through the UN, UDHR, all of these sorts of things. That kind of, um, you know, effort to, in a sense, uh, Europeanize, I think, the globe is something which, um, you know, can be and is, in many respects, by people like Modudi, by people like Qaradawi, uh, they attempt to push back against it, I think, um, with great attempt. Uh, and yeah. most of the time, I have to say, in, if you're thinking of real substantive legal change unsuccessfully, notwithstanding you know, constitutional amendments in, in, in right. 1980 in Egypt, making Sharia the principal source of legislation, right. I mean... But that's an add-on to the nation-state, right? I mean, even that is not a case where you have a Sharia system. That's basically adding, doing an add-on to a nation-state system that is European in identity and saying, now we're going to add this on as within the norms of the nation-state, within the presupposed, um, you know, this is, this is normal. And that thing is an add-on, so to speak, yes. if that makes sense. Sorry, I'm yeah. yeah. Yes, I mean, it, it has occurred to me, by the way, I say that uh, Peters emphasizes the relationship between state law and Syria. I was not, or co the codes and, uh, and Islamic law were not seen as antagonistic. Of course, he does mention right. in, a, in a very interesting article on the Sudanese so-called Mahdi that one of the critiques the, the, the Mahdi or Muta Mahdi, I should say, and his followers actually make of right. uh, the Turco-Egyptian uh, rule hmm. is that they implement, and he calls them Qawanin Siyasiya, and they mm -hmm. abolish had penalties in favor of European norms. I mean, it's a critique, by the way, that Wahhabis are also making, right, uh, right. Yeah. especially yeah. in the early 20th century and the late 19th yeah. century. Yeah. Uh, but yes, uh, uh, what people choose to do with these, these labels, of course, 
is up to them. And, uh, yeah. and it's, it's interesting in the context of Nigeria or northern Nigeria in the 2000s, when, of course, there, there are attempts to re-Islamize the, the legal system. So I'm, I'm a little conscious of time and uh, we have a lot of comments from actually one viewer in particular, but we will get to that. And um, I would like to invite anyone else who has any questions, please feel free to ask as well. But um, perhaps in closing, um, sort of, Amla, if you wanted to just have any reflections on the on the book and maybe, you know, in what ways um, the book also marks uh, a historical period at which we've, you know, uh, we have insights now that, um, supersede it in some respects, but also, you know, we're very grateful. Obviously, we stand on the shoulders. To some of extent, I mean, Peter's really laid a foundation, and, and subsequent scholarship can only really take uh, his work as a point of departure, whether to critique it or to supplement it, right. uh, or, or what have you. Now, I do have some critiques, not of the broad narrative, which I think he sketched and evidenced very well based on archival and documentary sources. Uh, and my critiques are really limited to points of detail, since I know viewers were saying, you know, we want to hear more, you know, criticism of the books. Um, yeah, but anyway, uh, not, you know, so I, I should mention something for form's sake, at least. Uh, so one point that's also come up from Khalid Fahmi's in Quest of Justice was, and this is on page 153, um, Peter says that what happens in 1883 when Syriac courts lose jurisdiction over things like criminal law and so on was not a big step, was not a big step. Now, why does he say this? He says because, well, you know, Islamic law was still important in other domains of the law, such as family law. And anyway, what happens in 1883 with the introduction of various French inspired codes is already preceded by many decades of codification, the creation of his... Uh, you know, so-called secular judiciary and so on. So what happens is actually not that surprising, it is not that radical rupture. Now, my problem with this uh, is, well, first of all, it's a value judgment. Who's to say it is or is not a, a rupture? Uh, mm-hmm. For many uh, Muslims, certainly for the, the figures he discusses uh, in the 1970s, arguing for the Islamization of law, actually any attempt to majorly uh, curtail the jurisdiction of Sharia courts is a major Right. Uh, major uh, rupture. Right. That's so he's, uh, he's moving from the sort of descriptive to the normative. Um, in some sense, you you could uh, you could understand it in in that sense. And uh, I mean, occasionally, problem. And I, I'm writing, I should say, a review of of this this impressive work. Right. Uh, so I will elaborate it in much greater length. But uh, he has a, an interesting article. Uh, or came out as a book chapter originally on, uh, well, he's done a lot of work on Muhammad al-Mahdi al-Abbasi, who was Mufti al-Diyar al-Masriya for uh, really half a century, uh, most of the second half of the 19th century. Right. And he talks about his work at great length and has an excellent and very fascinating article on uh, his fatwa on the uh, statues of lions adorning the Qasr uh, al-Nil uh, bridge. Uh, and during the Arabi Bay Revolt in 1881, he solicited a fatwa from Al-Mahdi uh, al-Abbasi uh, uh, regarding the destruction of these uh, asnam, or as, as, as uh, right. the Arabi characterizes them. Now, in his analysis and translation of the fatwa, hmm. uh, Peters uh, translates the phrase makruh tahrimen as almost forbidden. Right. Uh, but in fact, uh, this is distinctively Hanafi terminology. Makruh right. tahrimen means forbidden. Right. The only distinction between tahrim and makruh tahrimen is uh, to do with the sources of, of the prohibition. Right. It's, it's a legal legal and theory. The uh, anyway. of whether someone is gafir if they'd reject it, for example. Yeah. Well, among other distinctions, but it's it's clear prohibition. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, other points of detail, I'll, I think I'll I'll just mention uh, yeah. one or two. How more. early was that article? It may have been. I mean. Maybe the Hanafi distinction hadn't really reached the secondary literature very well at that point. But, no, uh, but uh, yeah. Peters is, is, a, is a, one He's of the former scholars yeah. who works on primary sources. I mean, notwithstanding his emphasis on the documentary sources, which to some extent is unprecedented in, in Islamic legal studies right. prior to his contributions, he also yeah. does clearly master the doctrinal elements of Islamic law. Right, so right. you find this uh, uh, 
he strikes an excellent balance between discussions of the doctrinal elements and how these were actually operationalized on the ground. Now, uh, in his article on uh, apostasy, if I'm not mistaken, right. Peter says uh, that the the last uh, or the last case he was able to find of execution of an apostate in the Ottoman context is in 1843, and then says in 1844, sorry, the right. Ottoman Sultan basically says there will be no more persecution of those who convert outside right. of Islam, and he kind of reassures European statesmen on the score. Right. Now, I mean, Heather Sharkey has written quite a lot on, on, on what actually happens in, in, in terms of religious freedom in the Ottoman context. Things do not clearly change in terms of statutory law until 1856, when right. Christian missionaries begin to operate in the open in the Ottoman context. But she finds cases of execution for apostasy in 1851 and 1852. Um, and the Ottoman Sultan, much uh, with as with the issue of slavery, we're very happy to confuse and, and, and tell European statesmen what they want to do. Yes, of course, we'll comply, while actually doing a different thing in practice. So in, in the debate on when slavery is actually abolished in the Ottoman Empire, the, the foremost monograph on this by Y. Hakan Erdem mm. uh, establishes that actually slavery continues uh, into the 20th century, you know, it's, it's permitted by law. But throughout uh, the 19th century, Ottoman statesmen are saying to the Europeans, yes, of course, uh, slavery is banned. And they, they allow confusion to exist on the fact that while attempts are made to suppress the slave trade, slavery is illegal, status continues for a very long time. Right. Uh, anyway, finally, I should say, there's uh, also we're, Peter's... We're very, very short on time. I mean, is yes. it okay for us to sort of maybe shift sure. to the sure. but, but thank you. But thank I mean, these, you are, these are fascinating insights. I think um, we, in many respects, um, in a sense, uh, I, I look forward to your uh, book review now. Because well, it's, it's a little bit review essay because I need your review more essay, space yeah. to, to talk about this. This contribution. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think uh, in terms of, uh, I, in the remaining time, we maybe have about 15 minutes, might go over by a minute or so. But uh, I just thought we'd give the opportunity to um, some of our viewers to sort of have their comments heard. In some sure. cases, questions. And in some cases, I think we may have touched on sort of what they have. Jan Islam, uh, who has been the main sort of like person offering uh, questions and comments, uh, has uh, remarked, sorry about all the comments. This show has been right up, right up my alley. So we we have no problem with people asking as many questions as they like. Yes. Um, and I, I, of course, in advance if we can't get to them. I yeah. should say the the first thing you should do is is get a copy of the book and, and read it. Right. The right, right. It'll answer many of your questions. Anyway, go on. And it's also, um, for those of you who have university um, affiliation, uh, you know, it's, uh, I basically just logged into my university uh, library and uh, was able to download the entire PDF uh, in one go. So that's that's something which legally. is very handy with some of these more recent texts. Perfectly legally, yes. Perfectly legally, of course, <laughs> yes. Okay, so um, in a sense, so let me let me actually go through some of uh, Jan Muhammad's comments uh, very. If quickly. you could perhaps summarize in the interest of time, and, and I'm going to actually put them on the screen very quickly. There's there's been a recent turn in the study of Islamic law, critiquing its secularization in Muslim states, former colonies. We've kind of referenced that in Halla, yeah. and then how Islamic is Islamic law if it is defined, regulated, and limited by the powers and the geographical restrictions of the modern nation state. Yes. And what did Peter say about it? Good. Well, I. I begin by making this uh, point Peters emphasizes that, uh, well, only Muslims are capable of making this determination. But right. secondly, Peters recognizes that, and again, this is something that subsequent scholarship has really built on and expanded, especially in the, in the context of Ottoman, uh, the right. Ottoman case. Right. Uh, the Ottomans did make extensive interventions in both the substance and adjudication and implementation of you know, Islamic law itself. For instance, by uh, and Baldwin, Sami Ayub, all of these scholars and more have, have written on this. Uh, so it might mean re re restricting the jurisdiction of a particular court, saying, uh, to, oh, and, and uh, suggesting that judges adopt a particular opinion of the Hanafi school, for instance, on a particular issue, and many other examples of this. But, but can I interject uh, briefly? I mean, um, just again with reference to, and this is probably something that the, the other scholars have mentioned as well, but Andrew March mentions that ultimately by putting this within the framework of maslaha, which is a sharia principle itself, yeah. this is um, sort of brought under the broad umbrella of uh, Islamic law as well, even if it 
ostensibly appears to be outside of it. Yes, so I mean, there were competing understandings of uh, exactly the, the, the dynamic and where the boundaries lay. Uh, Peters does say that later in the 19th century, in some civil cases, it wasn't exactly clear where right. the jurisdictional boundaries were between Sharia courts and, and Medella, uh, CS and Medellas. Right, right. Uh, but what I, what I mean to say is until the late 19th century, in the Egyptian context at least, yeah. Ottomans were so uncomfortable with the idea of encroaching on the domain of God's law right. that, for instance, they, they didn't refer to these institutions as mahakim. Right. Uh, they called them majalis because right. they, they, you know, the venue of justice should, you know, uh, they wanted to make this distinction between right. the implementation of these are to the Sharia, but of human der yeah. derivation law, yeah. or what have you. And, and I think that anxiety is something which is visible throughout sort of Islamic history. You kind of alluded to the sort of siyasa debates, so to speak. Yes. Like, uh, by siyasa, for viewers who are not familiar with it, uh, you know, in, in the pre-modern sort of um, context, it referred to executive privilege of a certain kind, where the yes. sultan is basically making almost extra Shari laws, yes. um, as opposed to what the term means in modern Arabic. Mm. I, I wanted to sort of um, give, so Muhammad al-Marakibi has also uh, offered a mm. long comment, so I'm going to read that if that's all right. Sure. Uh, I'll just put it on the screen and then, uh, so thank you very much, Amar, um, and I, I'd like to share that as well. Uh, in uh, in respect uh, to the question of rupture, perhaps one way of understanding Peter's claim and other and others uh, is to consider how secularization actually had begun long uh, decades before the uh, British colonialism. The change was substantive, not in the laws of, of mixed courts and consulate tribunals, but also in the mainstream courts. So, yeah. Yeah, so Marakib is doing pioneering work uh, on Egypt, actually in this period. So, yeah. you know, and uh, many, I expect many exciting publications out, out of his research. Right. Um, now, how exactly we understand these things is the subject of some controversy. Right. Uh, some would say the, 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 con the, the idea of secularization is wrongheaded to begin with. I mean, uh, so mm -hmm. Khalid Fahmi, Amr Shalakani, and, and other, other scholars. Right. Um, I should stress that. Peters tends to use the term or favor the term westernization as opposed to secularization hmm. um, yes, in, in discussing these things. Right. Um, yes, I, and, and we always return to this rupture continuity binary that is the bread and butter of historians. Was it rupture? And, and uh, what, part of what Peter's work has been doing and part of what subsequent scholars have built on right. is kind of as opposed to the narrative in the mid 20th century was rupture, 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 Islamic law disappears in the 19th century is replaced right. by secular codes, actually yeah. more continuity. So yeah. there's lots of, been lots of argument in favor of continuity. Baldwin says explicitly at uh, this point, Marakib just made right. that actually, st so state intervention long you can preceded. the book name as well, in which Baldwin says. Uh, Islamic law in Cairo, I, I forget that. I, I can yeah. post the title uh, subsequently in, in right. the comments on YouTube. That's but anyway, how exactly we understand secularization? I mean, this this is a contentious issue, and I expect Marakibi's research will shed more more light on this. Right, right, and and we look forward to that from you, Akhil uh, Habib Marakibi, inshallah. Um, I should say thank you for your message of you know just saying thank you very much for having this uh, session. Um, and we look forward to having all of you join us in future sessions as well and, and uh, sort of uh, contributing with your comments, really. Um, mm -hmm. I'm going to go back to Jan Islam. Uh, he's got a couple of other questions as well. Um, and in a sense, uh, those of you who ask the questions have the prerogative of being answered, so to speak. Um, but uh, I guess some of these are questions, some of these may be comments. So let me put this on the screen. Also, you mentioned the debate regarding the projection of secularism into Islamic law in Orientalist studies of CSN and Qanun. Okay, we kind of, um, I think we've discussed yeah. a point uh, broadly in that uh, sort of uh, region. And then the next uh, comment or question is, okay, does this not resemble many liberal Muslim suspicions? Okay, so uh, this is one of the things about you know, adding a comment, we don't necessarily know how to temporarily place this because uh, it, it's got a timestamp of 6.20, but we can't remember exactly when we said what we did. <laughs> so does this resemble many liberal Muslim suspicions that so-called neo-fundamentalism 
uh, sorry, uh, of so-called neo-fundamentalism, when what in fact is being advocated is a return to the Quran and Sunnah. Well, I mean, um, I should say so. You you have and Michael Cook has discussed this in in his uh, yeah ancient religions, modern politics. politics. There are many yeah. many other places. Yeah. Uh, so. In, in any period in Islamic con uh, history, and Marakabi, I know, has researched this as well, you find an enduring critique of CS norms as encroaching on the domain of God's law. Right. But the mainstream understanding, certainly among the, the Ottoman religious learned hierarchy, was that these norms were compatible with... Right. right. And this is how they were actually framed by right. Ottoman political elites. Right. And enforced by, uh, and the, the, the interesting thing about the Ottoman context is that uh, Qadi courts had almost um, had almost monopolized uh, the, the the enforcement and implementation of law, and you did have right. other four as well. But right. really, the extent to which the Ottomans centralized, bureaucratized, and and gave them extensive authority over law, so it was Ottoman Qadi courts that were implementing yeah. these these qawanin. Yeah. Uh, at least, at least into the nineteenth century. And there have been several sort of uh, major, I think, interventions in the field. Uh, Ottoman studies is one of these areas which I need to read a lot more about. But people mm. like uh, uh, Guy Burak, uh, Guy Burak, and um, Sami Ayub more recently, mm. um, you know, have indicated the way in which um, you know Guy Burak calls it the second formation of Islam. Yes, um, of so, Islamic law. <laughs> of Islamic law. Sorry, so second formation of Islamic law, and. One of the things I think to bear in mind, however, is that that's happening indigenously to a tradition that is um, ascendant itself. Yes. And what happens with the European colonial uh, imposition of um, certain forms of law is it's happening at the behest of someone else's ideological frame. Absolutely. And, I, and, and, and that's the significant difference, I think, that people that led to the objections of people like Maududi. I mean, if you read some of the writings of people like Maududi, um, his Islamic law and constitution, I, I read that and I think, well, you'd be very happy with the sort of centralization that was taking place in the Ottoman. Yes. Under the Ottoman right? yes. So it does reflect, I mean, and, and some scholars have uh, argued, um, perhaps Hussein Yilmaz, Guy Burak, of course, um, people like Aisha Zarakal, at, um, she's got a short article on uh, sovereignty um, and the notion of Eurocentrism. It's like more of a sort of round table discussion in that. Yeah. And she basically says, well, these seem to indicate trajectories across history in, in kind of global history of, um, you know, greater centralization in which um, people like the Ottomans were participating. The colonial yes. period then brings that and imposes it in a very specific model. Yes, I, I'm, I'm, I should say these are all excellent uh, points. Right. For me, I mean, I think there is a danger in pushing too hard against continuity. Peters very clearly makes a distinction between the Ottoman project prior to the 19th century right. and you know Ottoman codification in the 19th that, for instance, uh, specifies particular punishments for particular offenses right. and uh, this idea of a clear code and so all of the, all of this stuff. And as right. you say, it's, it's under the influence of European norms, something that didn't happen prior to the 19th century in the domain of law. Um, I should stress that, and Guy Burak, as you say, has made this point about, for instance, the Ottoman educational hierarchy and, and so on. Now, it's clear to me that what happens in the Ottoman context in the early modern period, say, 15th century onwards, is actually unique in the Islamic world. Mm -hmm. You do not get the same, at least the same level of hierarchization, the creation of uh, different levels of courts and the, the, the regulation of madaris, the formalization, right. bureaucratization. I mean, right. in no other context I'm aware of, and I, I don't believe I'm mistaken in this respect, uh, is the religious elite kind of co-opted by the state and organized by the state. Right. So appealing to the Ottoman example as representative, I think, would be deeply yeah. flawed. Yeah. And one of the critics yeah. of Halak's impossible state is it doesn't take the Ottomans into account. And right. he could right. always give the rejoinder, well, actually, it's not representative, notwithstanding right. the importance of, of, of right. the Ottoman case. Right. Uh, but I do, I, I would emphasize the, the rupture that happens in the night. I, I, uh, I think Peter's, at least in the work in this volume, yeah. recognizes that, that, that disjunction between the 19th century and what happens before. So we, we have, and thank you again, Omar, um, we've, we've come to a full hour, but I, I want to sort of give the opportunity to a couple of people um, who've asked additional questions. Um, so maybe go over it by a couple of minutes, if possible, for each question. Yes, um, let's, let's not go too much. <laughs> yes, of course. Tem Uch says, uh, do we have... Uh, okay, let me just show this. 
do we have to understand fiqh and Islamic law synonymously? And let me ask the other question as well. So Zubair Abbasi says, uh, thank you, uh, Osama and Omar, for the session. May I ask yes. by the title of uh, Tahrir al yes. codification? So uh, the, the books we mentioned, we can post the in comments uh, on the YouTube the channel. YouTube. Will is, a number of people will be joining on Facebook. So if you could kindly post the comment on Facebook, I'll send you the link for that as well. Omar. Sure. So we, we will make sure to do that. We'll, we'll, we'll share that. Uh, so inshallah, you can um, follow up. And so Temuch's question, do we need to understand fiqh and Islamic law synonymously? He had actually an, another question, which was, can there, be an can there be alternative manifestations, formulations other than fiqh? I Very interesting. A, so yeah. to some extent, to a limited extent in one article, uh, Peters actually does make a distinction between Sharia and Fiqh, and this is a long, I mean, I have a long rant, because as far as I tell people, uh, you know, it's very common now to make this distinction between Sharia as the law of God and Fiqh as the human attempt to realize this. Right. One is the imperfect human effort and the other is, I mean, and I know my colleague Josh Ralston has also discussed this in, in his recent book. Right. Um, now, Peters does, to some extent, embrace this distinction. Mm. I should say, in this form, the distinction is a modern phenomenon. My colleague, mm. Abdurrahman Mustafa, said he cannot find examples of this, the distinction being made in this way prior to 1960. Right. Um, now, they aren't co terms, so Sharia and Fiqh are clearly different things to pre-modern jurists, right. uh, as in their boundaries don't overlap, so Sharia is much broader. Uh, Sharia actually, uh, you know, in, in works like Jury's Kitab uh, Sharia is, is a book of theology written in the fourth Islamic mm -hmm. century, nothing to do with Islamic law. But is that uh, but, the title or is that, uh, does he substantively engage with the term Sharia in the book as well? Well, he doesn't really, but the fact that he's calling a book Kitab Sharia and then writes about Islamic theology, and it, it took a long time for the, these, uh, many centuries for these terms to acquire the, the meanings they, they have now yeah. today. Now, yeah. but in many contexts, you would find Sharia, for instance, in, in court judgments in Egypt, and I think yeah. Baldwin gives examples of this as far as I remember, using the term or using the phrase, the ruling according to the Islamic Sharia. Is this happening in the pre-modern context uh, in, in Ottoman Egypt? So uh, Sharia and Fiqh, to some extent, were used interchangeably. They do not have exactly the same boundaries, but the, the idea that Sharia is the law of God versus Fiqh as, as a kind of human attempt to operationalize this is, is, as I understand, this use of the terminology is purely modern, yeah. and we, I would be surprised if it's found before the second half of the 20th century. Right. But, the, but in a sense, that distinction kind of always exists in the sense that... You yeah, know, so the, there is, of course, a yeah. distinction. You find it very clearly in Ibn Taymiyyah, for instance, between the law of God and yeah. infallible juristic attempts to realize this. But my pet peeve is just about this right. use of terms. We should respect... Yeah. Uh, how these terms were used historically, we should not right, right. Uh, assign meanings that would not have been recognized by historical right. actors when and, and, using terms historically. And the question of can there be alternative manifestations, reformulations other than fiqh? I mean, I, I'm not entirely sure what to make of the question, to be honest. It, it's such a big question and it could go in so many different directions. Yes, but. and I, I would just uh, reiterate uh, Peter's point that, uh, well, it's up to Muslims to kind of have these right, conversations. Right, right. And I'm going to actually just throw in, uh, this is more of a comment, um, but this is the last thing we'll do, which is Zubair Abbasi saying, Omar, let's not forget the fatawa al-Amgiriya in the Mughal Empire and the incorporation of the ulama into the state structure. Very good, but still yeah. it comes nowhere near what yeah. happens in the Ottoman context. Yeah. You know, you do not find yeah. rulers saying, graduates of this madrasa should go to this court and... Right. And so on. I mean, and, 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 and the introduction of, of Qawaneen as anything other than the dynastic law. I'm, yes, there are similarities. And I think uh, Burak, if I remember, uh, does not kind of emphasize the, the distinctiveness of the Ottoman context. But for me, what happens is, is, is quite different. Right. Similarities, but the difference is also, is also important. Right. Thank you so much, Omar. Jazakumullah uh, khairan. This has been sort of really uh, a wonderful uh, opportunity to sort of yes. discuss a... Um, I should stress, of course, we haven't done anywhere near, near enough justice to the book, which is much longer and richer than I have given an we, account. We can't of. talk about a 720-page book in an hour and do any <laughs> sense of justice. But, you know, and thank you, everyone, um, you know, for uh, throwing in your comments and questions. Um, a number of you are saying thank you, um, Tem Uch. Uh, Muhammad al-Marakibi, um, Aisha say, and thank you for joining. It's really, without you, we wouldn't have this nice uh, sort of 
last uh, stretch of interaction and really reflection on issues that go beyond what the two of us could come up with. Um, but uh, I guess uh, the greatest thanks I'm going to give to you, Amar, for reading the book. Well, <laughs> it belongs to the authors, actually, of the books. And, more and, than and indeed the author of the book, uh, Rude Peters himself, uh, for you know what he's done to really put Islamic law and Islamic legal studies on the map in the Western um, intellectual tradition. Um, so with that, I'll conclude. Barakallahu um, uh, We do have uh, the final point, which is to mention next week's book, of course. Yes, indeed. Okay, so you... you uh, please do mention next week's book, and if you next want, next week's to book, which I, I can hold up to the camera, is right. Ahmed Shamsi's excellent book on uh, print culture, rediscovering the Islamic classics. So I look forward to uh, joining you all next time, where we'll have a discussion of this book, uh, which really has quite profound implications for Islamic culture in in the modern period. The book is available on JSTOR for those of you who have access, institutional access, probably. You may be able to get it if you sort of just log in, uh, register and log in to JSTOR. And, uh, you know, it's a book that I've read as well. So I, I look forward to a sort of a more meaningful contribution, perhaps. <laughs> but uh, this has just been a wonderful opportunity. And inshallah, we will have, um, you know, many future weeks. And we look forward to everyone joining for that. Jazakumullah khairan. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us. Fiyamayla. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.